Would you please take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians, chapter 3. Last week when we read these verses, we, were, uh, we read up through verse 11 last week, uh, but we spent most of our time talking about verses 5 through 10, and you might have noticed that we really didn't talk about verse 11 at all, even though it's, it's probably one of the most profound and significant verses in this chapter. Certainly, that's, it has a lot of competition for that title, but it's a very important verse. And so uh, that was not an, an oversight last week or, or simply running out of time, but that was because I wanted to come back this week and really spend the whole week this week thinking about verse 11 and the significance of it, the implications of it, and what it means for us as a congregation. So I'm going to be reading uh, verses 9 through 17. That'll kind of allow us to hear it in context, uh, hear some of the preparation for verse 11 as well as some of what follows. Uh, But verse 11 is where we will spend our time today, so uh, listen especially when we are in verse 11. So let me ask, if you're able, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's holy word today? This is Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray one more time. Father, we're so thankful for your word. You have given it to us to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to guide us in all righteousness, to lead us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we find forgiveness, and to show us the path to life. So Lord, we pray today as we study your word, would your spirit be with us? Would your spirit please open the eyes of our hearts, illumining this great Uh, important passage for us, Lord, that we might hear it, that we might understand it fully, and that we might practice it in our lives as you intend for us to do. So, Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder if anyone here is ever frustrated by the state of the world today. I wonder if you ever simply feel a bit overwhelmed, if you ever look around or listen to the news or or read it and and just feel like uh, there's so much evil in the world today, that there is so much despair and and brokenness and fallenness. 
I feel that way sometimes. To me, it often feels like uh, the, the opening scene, if you remember, well, almost the opening scene of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, it's at least the opening of this, the part that's set in Narnia, uh, where we, we remember that the entire land of Narnia is suffering under perpetual winter. Right? And, and we learn that it's always winter there and never Christmas. It's, it's just the frozen cold, the, the death, none of the good parts. Uh, there, there's no new life there. It's always winter. And all of the, the residents, at least those who still have their hope, are still looking forward to the coming of Aslan. And, and they know that when he comes, winter will break. And he will bring new life. And he will make all things new. And spring will finally come. Does it ever feel, uh, to some degree, like the world we live in is suffering under perpetual winter? There's no new life. Everything is broken. Everything is cold and hard and dead. That's often the picture for me when I look around at the sin and the brokenness of, of the world we live in. And the question, of course, is, is where do we look for hope? Where do we look for hope? Here we are awaiting the coming king who's going to come and, and make all things new and bring new life. And of, of course we know that as believers we look to Jesus as the coming king, but, but I want to say something else in terms of where we look for our hope today. And that is, that, that Jesus has provided us with the church. And, and that the church here on earth is meant to be a little foretaste of heaven. So here we are in this, in this world that is suffering under sin, that is so fallen and so broken, and yet God's design is that churches everywhere, each local body is itself a little foretaste of the community of heaven. That yes, we're surrounded by, by brokenness and death, but in the church there is life. We are a community that practices the the ways of Jesus. That we live under the King uh, who is yet to come. We are a community where Jesus reigns. That's the vision of the church is that we are a community that is ruled by heaven, not the principles of this world. And so there is meant to be this great sense of hope here that, that this is meant to be this little community where, where we're loving one another, where Jesus reigns and we praise him and, and we live as we will live on that great day when Jesus is all in all. Uh, we don't see that everywhere yet. He hasn't made all things new yet. But what he does in the church is meant to be a small foretaste of what will one day cover all the earth when our king comes back. And what we get here in, in this verse that we're talking about today, verse 11 is part of the vision for that. It's part of the vision of what the church is to be like, specifically in that sense that the church is a community of heaven, that the church is meant to be a foretaste of what we will all experience worldwide when Jesus returns and makes all things new. I want to try to explain this under three points. These verses we read, they give us the picture of a multicultural church, the priority of a multicultural church, and the pathway to a multicultural church. It is very rare that I get to alliterate all my points, so you can forgive me for one day. But those are the three points. The picture, the priority, and the pathway of a multicultural church. So first of all, these verses give us the picture of a multicultural church. If you remember last week, we were talking about uh, verse 10, this idea where it talks about uh, we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. We talked about the project that God is doing, this restoration project, that the image of God in man, 
has been marred and broken by sin. Not fully destroyed, but it's been broken. It has been marred. And God now has taken up a restoration project. That's part of what discipleship is and sanctification. That's part of our growth in Christ. What is happening as we grow in Christ is that God is slowly but surely accomplishing this work in our lives of restoring us into the image of Christ. He's restoring the image which was broken. And so we are to put on this new self. That's what these verses are emphasizing, that that this new self, uh, it's, it's living under the rules of heaven. It's being renewed after the image of its creator. But here's what verse 11 adds. Verse 11 helps us to broaden our vision of this. That, that to be renewed, to be restored back into the image of Christ is not purely an, an individual or personal restoration, but that's also a, a communal project that God is doing. It is a corporate renewal. That's why verse 11 is talking about the church. Right? We could get through verse 10 thinking he's talking about each, each individual, and that is true, but verse 11 broadens it for us into a corporate renewal. Because here's what God is doing. If, if we think about churches that are all over the world, God is forming lots of these small communities of believers, local churches uh, of redeemed people in the process of restoration who in our corporate lives together are anticipating the final restoration of all things. When Jesus makes all things new, there will come a day when Jesus restores the entire earth Right? The knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It will be, the, the extent will be perfect all over the earth. We're not there yet. What we see now is that God is forming lots of little communities. Each local church is a picture of God's restoration. And that's why verse 11 is broadening this. It's about the church. It's about the corporate aspect of God restoring us. And specifically, the feature of the church that he points out in verse 11 is that within the church, all our interpersonal relationships are so transformed that various demographic categories, which in the world would divide people and keep us separate from one another and often cause fear and distrust and suspicion and animosity, what he says is that within the church, where God is restoring us, those, uh, those demographic distinctions, they mean nothing at all. They mean nothing at all specifically because he says at the end of verse 11, because here Christ is all and is in all. And that, that last part of that verse, that little line, that Christ is all and is in all, that is not just some little spiritual platitude that he, that he throws out there because that sounds good. That is a theological reality. And that is a theological reality that is true of us. It is true within the church. And it is a reality that, that relativizes and supersedes every other reality for us. That is the controlling reality. That Christ is all. That Christ is all. Because here's what that means to say that Christ is all and is in all. Take any two people from this congregation... Any two people, they will have lots of differences. That's a guarantee. Any two people, they will have lots of differences. Some of those differences will be trivial things. They'll have different hobbies. They'll have different favorite restaurants, etc. But some of those differences will be things that in the world's eyes are very significant. Things that are defining. 
of who we are, things like our race, our cultural background, even our economic status, our social status, our educational status. We'll have all these differences. Some are trivial, some we might say are significant, but here's what verse 11 is saying. Verse 11 says in the church, none of those differences matter. They don't carry any weight for us because here's what matters is that you have these two people and Christ is all. And Christ is in all. And so if those two people have Christ in common, then they have a a common fellowship that is so profound and so weighty and so deep that there are no other differences that can divide them. That's what that means at the end of verse 11, that if two people have Christ in common, then there are no other differences that have any weight. Their fellowship in Christ is so profound that no other differences can divide them. And so we look at a verse like this, and it talks about Greek and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, circumcised, uncircumcised. We know that when we talk about race, we know that's a hot topic. In our country today, in our culture right now, we know what a loaded topic is. We know how it feels like over the last several years that that race relations in our world, in our country even, have not been in a good place right now. Uh, and, And when it comes to the culture at large, I don't know what the solution is. But when it comes to the church, I do. Because it's right here in verse 11. We have Christ. All in all, and he is in all. And that is such a life-giving and a hope-giving reality. To know that with Christ, we have, with, within the church, we have the resources for overcoming the prejudices, the divisions that, that in our culture at large and in our world at large are, are, are ruining us right now. They're causing so much despair. And yet in the church, here's what Paul says, we don't recognize those things as being significant. They still exist. They still exist, but we don't, we don't define ourselves by those things. In verse 11, just look at, look at these uh, comparisons that he gives. First he says, here there is not Greek and Jew. Now, the, to us today that feels a little foreign, but re- we remember in the first century that was no inconsequential division. That was significant. We remember that Jews in the first century, they, they did not and they could not share table fellowship with Gentiles. They wouldn't even go into the same houses. This was a separation which often spawned bitterness, often spawned division between them. Remember in in Paul's letter to the Galatians, do you remember what he says to Peter? He says he rebuked Peter to his face because when the Gentiles arrived, he had pulled back, he had separated himself from eating with them. He said at one time they were enjoying table fellowship, they were getting along, but then certain people had arrived from Jerusalem and, and Peter, even Peter, pulled back and said, I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles anymore. He, he, he introduced new divisions based on this distinction between Jew and Gentile. And Paul says, I, I rebuked him because his conduct was out of step with the gospel. That to recognize those distinctions is out of step with the gospel. He says, there is no Greek or Jew in the church. If Christ is all, and if Christ is in all, we do not recognize that distinction says here there is not circumcised and uncircumcised. That's a very similar distinction. We won't spend much time on that. He says here there is no slave or free. Think of that one. 
not just talking about racial and cultural differences, that's only part of the discussion, significant though it is, but here he introduces economic distinctions. That they had local churches that included in their membership slaves and slave owners who came together in the same body of Christ to, to worship the Lord together. Today we, we might talk about divisions between rich and poor, white-collar workers and blue-collar workers. And if we're honest, I think these distinctions oftentimes can make us just as uncomfortable as talking about racial distinctions. Right? To talk about economic realities. Paul says that's not a distinction we recognize. If Christ is all and Christ is in all, then the differences between us in economic status, in wealth status, uh, those aren't the defining realities anymore. Because both rich and poor are in Christ, and the rich learn to boast only in Christ, and the poor learn to boast only in Christ, and not to define themselves by their economic status, so that they learn not to judge others by economic status as well. But Christ is all. Then he says, he goes on, he says, there's not barbarians, Scythians. Here's another cultural distinction. Barbarians, the barbarians were despised by the Greeks for their unsophistication. It was a cultural divide. They were despised. And the Scythians, as far as we know, the Scythians were even more so. These were residents from the area just north of the Black Sea. So there's sort of a, basically a subset of barbarians. But they were thought to be the ultimate embodiment of unrefinement and savagery. They were the most despised. Even the barbarians looked down on the Scythians. Right? So, so if you had barbarians, okay, that's bad enough. Now they're Scythians. These are the most unrefined the most culturally despised people. This is going to the very extreme. What Paul is saying here is, is if there is, if this distinction is not recognized, he is saying there is literally no kind of person that, that you can think of who is so different from you, whose values are so different from your values, whose worldview is so different from world, your worldview, who, who's just, whose life, whose family life, whose cultural preferences are so different, there's literally no person who's so different from you that you cannot be brought into a common table fellowship with that person through Christ. Because he can look at a church that's going to have Jew, Gentile, barbarian, even Scythian, and say Christ is all and Christ is in all. And if that is true, he says, that gives us a foundation for a common fellowship, a common unity, a common love, and a common uh, life together as a corporate body that is so deep and so profound that, that other sort of human-introduced distinctions, things that the world thinks are important, he says that those, are, those become of no consequence. And if we're so committed to the idea that we are united through Christ and through Christ alone, then, then we are not divided by other things. This is part of the beauty of the church, uh, being a foretaste of heaven. Now, I, I find it fascinating. Further down in chapter 3, down in verse 18 and beyond, Paul gives some really practical, down-to-earth instructions. Uh, and he talks to all different categories of people. Right? He starts with wives and husbands and children. 
fathers, slaves, masters. He, he begins to single out different categories of people in the church and give them particular instructions that relate to their particular stage of life. Right? So, so there are specific uh, just guidance, ethical and moral guidance he gives to people based on their stage in life. Now, verse 11, he's just said, most of these distinctions have no bearing. And yet he comes back to them. And, and here's what that says to me. That says the gospel doesn't completely obliterate the rest of your identity. It doesn't completely obliterate what is true about us, but it relativizes it. So we're still individuals with, with unique vocations, we have unique callings, unique identities. Uh, and so uh, each, for each one of us, our, our life in following the Lord, seeking to be obedient to him, it, w- it will look different for some of us just because of a setting in life, just because of who we are. Right? For, for a, a, a young, single female, the following Christ will look different for a, a middle-aged, married man. Or, you know, your, your setting in life still determines some of the realities of following Christ, but, but here's what it means that those distinctions don't define who we are in the church, that we all come together as those who are in Christ, and we celebrate it. We celebrate that. That's the picture that Paul gives of a multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic, multi-everything church. Now, I want to talk also about the priority of it. That's the picture. Here's the priority of the multiracial church. The multiracial character of the church is not accidental. It didn't just come about uh, sort of in time. It's actually intentional and part of the very reason that Christ has come. Part of the very reason that Christ has come. Take your Bibles, flip over with me for just a moment to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, we get a peek sort of behind the uh, eternal curtain, as it were. We get this peek into the throne room of heaven where we get to see what is going on in the heavenly throne room through this vision that John presents. And in Revelation chapter 5, the, all the angels, the living creatures, those who are surrounding the throne of God, they fall down before the Lamb. When Jesus comes in, they fall down in worship and in adoration, and they sing a new song to him, saying, and I'm reading verse 9 now, they sang a new song, saying, this is singing to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Just imagine the glory that is going on in this scene. We're here John is giving us a glimpse into the, the very heavenly throne room of God where, where he is on his throne. He's surrounded by all these uh, varieties of angelic beings who are singing praises to him night and day. And Jesus enters and they fall before him and they, they praise him. And there's one specific thing here that they are praising Jesus for. That by his death he has ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. This is one of the greatest scenes in the, in the whole book of Revelation. And, and when we have this peak, it is specifically the multiracial character of the church that the angels are praising Jesus for. 
Think of that. Out of all the things that they could sing praise and worship to Jesus for, that is what is recorded. That is what is recorded. And, and here's why, I think, at least part of the reason that John records this particular song is that for the church in the first century, and no doubt for us today, we are meant to read that. I think we're meant to ask, is that what we are praising Jesus for? If that's what the, the praise and the worship service in the very throne room of heaven is looking like, if that's what characteristics of Jesus stand out to them the most and they fall before him because of that, is that what we praise him for? Does our worship line up with the worship of heaven? Do we praise him for the same things he's being praised for in heaven? We see this and we realize that, that to some extent the very existence of the multicultural, multiracial church, the very existence of it, is a testimony to the power of Jesus. It's a testimony to the fact that Jesus has done something which we cannot and could not and would not do on our own. But Jesus, by his death, by the fact that he was slain, has accomplished it. And they sing his praise because of it. And it shows us this is what Jesus delights in. Jesus delights in a diverse church. And therefore, are we delighting in it? I believe we ought to delight in the things that delight Jesus. After all, if, if we do anything less than that, if, if we choose not to delight in that which Jesus delights in, if we choose to begrudge it, what are we doing? Is there any clearer sign that we are seeking our own kingdom rather than seeking first the kingdom of heaven? Revelation 5 shows us the priority, that this is part of the very reason that Jesus has come, part of the very reason that Jesus has died. Okay, so we've seen the picture, we've seen the priority. Now I want to say something about the pathway of a multiracial church, and that, to say that is to say, how do we do this? How are we going to get there? Uh, we can recognize how beautiful it is in theory, we can nod and say, yes, the Bible presents this as something that Jesus delights in. How do we do it? How are we going to get there? Back in Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 15. I think all the verses relate to it, but look especially at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. I think the vision that he presents of this, this multinational, ethnic, racial church of Christ is beautiful, but we recognize how challenging it is as well. It's, it's going to ask a lot of us. Some of our patterns of living are so deeply ingrained. Yes, we have to admit even prejudices that we hold that are deeply ingrained. Our, our, the soil of our hearts will need to be tilled up uh, so that the gospel can take deeper root. And there's a reason that, that this vision of verse 11, it doesn't stand on its own in Colossians. It is surrounded by the rest of chapter 3. And chapter 3 is all of this really hard-hitting ethical and moral instruction. It, it's, it's this discipleship passage about how are we to walk? What does it mean to let love rule in our hearts? What does it mean to, to get along with one another? We started in verse 9, where it says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self. Verse 12 also, putting on a compassionate hearts, kindness and humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. 
These are all parts of the path, but, but especially it's verse 15 where he says, here's, here's sort of the ultimate big picture. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What, what is the peace of Christ? Well, think of this. It's an objective reality first. This is not, he's not talking here about sort of the subjective impression that we get sometimes Right? Sometimes if we're praying over a decision and, and we're thinking on it, we say, well, the Lord has given me peace about my decision and we, we recognize his leading and we follow him. That's good. He's talking about something else. He's talking about an objective reality that Christ has made peace. Right? Whether you feel it or not, doesn't matter. It's objective. Christ has made peace. And he's done it in two ways. Well, look at what he says first uh, before the two ways. Colossians 1.20. He's already introduced this. Colossians 1.20. Uh, where he says, through him, that is through Christ, God is pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus has made peace by the blood of his cross. Same thing he says, Ephesians 2.15. Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians 2.15, where he says that what Christ has done is abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, why? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ has made peace through his cross, and he's made peace, peace two ways. He made peace with God, because that was our primary problem, was that we were at enmity with God through our sin, we were alienated from him. Uh, there was animosity. There was wrath. There was not peace. But through the cross, Christ has made peace. Right? So that we may be reconciled to God. He has taken what stood in the way of it and he has removed it. That was our sin. It's been nailed to the cross so that now there is peace. We're no longer under condemnation. Rather, we are his beloved sons and daughters. But that's not all. That's not all, is it? If he has made peace for us with God then the, the, the application, the, the thing that follows, is we also have peace with one another. We have peace with one another. The vertical peace translates into this horizontal reality that we have peace with one another now. And so here's where Paul says, now let this peace, this objective reality, it's not about how you feel it. He says, now let that rule in your hearts. Let that be the thing that guides your decision-making. Let that be the thing that guides your interactions one with another. So what guides your interactions? Well, it's not uh, subjective feelings about one another on any given day, whether you're getting along, whether you're feeling good. What's guiding you is the peace of Christ, which is ruling in your hearts. The question we often have to ask ourselves is simply this. What principle is ruling in our hearts? On a very down-to-earth, practical uh, you know, where the rubber meets the road, what is the principle that's guiding us? Every time you interact with somebody, or choose not to interact with them, or choose how to interact with them, some principle is ruling over that. Some principle is ruling, guiding, uh, whether it's the principle of choosing to stay in your own comfort zone, uh, the principle of trying to impress a person, the principle of trying to build a relationship that I think will benefit me, something. There's some principle that guides every interaction. And Paul says, here's what ought to be ruling it. The peace that Christ has made so that there is no longer two, but, but he has made us into one body. 
one new man, the church, where Christ is all and is in all. And because that is the reality, because that is true of, of all of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, therefore, we don't recognize other principles. We don't recognize other distinctions that might guide how we interact with one another. We, we act, we behave on this, that God has made peace through Christ. That Christ is all and is in all. And he says, let that be what rules in your hearts. As he finishes the verse, because what? You were called in one body. In one body. Right? The church, the body of Christ, is one body. And a body is not meant to hate parts of itself, to fight against itself. A body is meant to care for itself. Every part. If, if my toe is hurting, I don't say, oh, that's just my toe, who cares? Let's be done with it. No, I value my toes. When they hurt, I hurt. When they hurt, I, I adjust my lifestyle to, to, to take care of them, to relieve pressure. I tend to them. So think of this. Here's two things to be, to be very practical. Here are two things we do in every service that you've probably noticed, uh, but we try to, to live this out in a very practical way. Two things. First, uh, we have the exchange of peace. Right? When we have, uh, just after the, the assurance of pardon, uh, we, we stand up and we shake hands, we, we go around, we talk to people, uh, and we say, you know, at least we encourage you to say, either peace of Christ or grace and peace. We, we say this occasionally, that this is specifically not meant to be just a sort of a meet-your-neighbor time. It's, it's not meant to be a little social break. It's not recess. It's not the seventh-inning stretch. It is specifically, there's a theological rationale for why we do that, and that is to share and to express our peace that we have with one another through Christ. That, that little moment, right, it may not feel like really the highlight of the service, and theologically maybe it's not, but that's meant to be a little microcosm of life. Right? It's, a, it's a little microcosm in which we are intentionally expressing the peace that we have with one another. And where it can be a time where if you're not at peace, sort of subjectively, if, if there's the objective peace that's been made, but if you're not subjectively sort of letting that rule, then you have an opportunity to make things right, to ask for forgiveness, to give forgiveness, to reconcile. So that's the first thing we do. We have the exchange of peace, and we do that intentionally. Then second, of course, we also participate every Sunday in the Lord's Supper. And that is a sacrament in which we recognize and celebrate the fact that we have peace with God and, therefore, we have peace with one another. Both, both the vertical peace, the horizontal peace, are both in play. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, he says this, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Right? There's a symbolism in it. That we are all sharing one meal, right? We're gathered around one table. Table fellowship is one of the most profound ways that, that we express our love for people, our unity with them, sort of this sense of family togetherness. And that's what we do as a church, right? Sure, we stay in our pews. But symbolically, we're around one table. Jesus is the host, and, and there's one loaf that we all share. And what a beautiful picture that is. A beautiful picture of all sorts of different people, all sorts of differences, 
could be recognized and pointed out and counted, but we recognize that we can gather around the one table with Christ because God has made peace through Christ. And that table is meant to be a live-out picture of this reality, that if we share Christ in common, then we have this fellowship so profound that no differences can separate us. Union in Christ trumps worldly differences every time. That's the reality. One theologian expresses it this way. He says, Our hope is that if we get good enough at forgiving those sitting with us around the communion table, we will also be able to forgive those sitting with us around the breakfast table. He says, This is meant to be another one of these little microcosms where we recognize in this practice a reality that we hope will will branch out from there and and begin to seep into every area of life because this this is the church at its most church, right? Expressing our union with Christ, demonstrating in a practical way our, our union with one another through Christ, that, we ha- that Christ is all, he's in all, he's made peace, and here we are in worship together around the throne expressing that. And that's meant to be the church at its most church and say, if we get good enough at doing this, that, that reality will invade the rest of life. That peace of Christ will rule in our hearts, not just here, but at home and at work and when we're at, with our families, and when we're playing, and, and whatever it is. Now, a, a closing thought. We know this is a beautiful picture. But I, I have to think, there, there's nothing glib when Paul writes this. That Paul, of all people, he knew the challenges. He, he was one of these you know, itinerant missionaries. He spent time in so many churches. He knew the challenges. He knew that we live in a divided world. He knew that most often we tend to make friends with people who are most like us. I mean, we can be honest here. This picture is great, but it's difficult. It's difficult for us in reality. We know there will be challenges to it. Ted Kluck, a fun writer, he writes about the value of community, and he says, let's be honest, you know, community, when we were in college, he says community was easy. We stay up all night with our friends, you know, confessing our sins, talking about girls, solving all the problems of the world. He says, that's, that's easy community. You literally live in the same building, you take the same classes, you eat in the same cafeteria, eating the same food, you're identical. He says, that's, that's easy community, and that's not what it's like in the church. God has brought a very diverse group of people together who have diverse problems, who have diverse interests, who have diverse backgrounds. Paul's not talking about sort of a a cheap version of church unity, of fellowship. He knew all about the challenges and the differences. He knew about the snobbiness of Greeks and how they looked down on barbarians and even worse on the Scythians. Right? Paul is not saying that this is is good, this is easy, this is self-evident, let's all go do it. He knows that this will take practice. This will take effort. This will take all of these verses putting on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. But ultimately, it will take not just practice and effort and work. Ultimately, and Paul knows this, it takes the atoning work of Christ. There is no other path to this kind of radical unity in a diverse body than the atoning work of Christ, which is why Paul says at the end of the verse, there's only one way to accomplish a church like this, And that is because Christ is all. 
and in all. This beautiful portrait of this, this diverse, multi-racial, multi-economic status, everything church, is only possible because Christ is the one who has done it. By the blood of Christ it is possible because he has forgiven our sins. He is the one who has brought us together and it is God through Christ who is doing this restoration project. Remember the, the, the marred statue whose beauty was lost, he is the one who restores it. And, and this is the vision when he's finished with the restoration. On that great day, this is what it's going to look like. And so we are now a little community of heaven practicing here that which it will look like perfectly on that great day when Christ is ultimately fully all in all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, where he sits now at your right hand making intercession for us. We thank you for the power of the Spirit that he has poured out from on high to be in us and with us, to accomplish among his people that which we can never accomplish on our own or in our own power. Lord, we ask now, having read this vision of the church, Lord, we are insufficient in ourselves. We can't do these things. But Lord, help us. Help us to obey and to trust in Christ, to submit to you, to to, uh, follow not after the things of this world, but, but to be renewed in our minds in the image of Christ. Lord, we pray that that your spirit in power would convict us, would press these verses on our hearts. And Lord, through your spirit, we pray that the peace of Christ in our hearts, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray.